Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of the Appendix N Book Club. This is our episode on Ursula K. Le Guin's The Farthest Shore. I'm Jeff, and with me today is that Archmage Hoy. Uh, formerly the Master Changer, but recently promoted and granted tenure at the, at the School of Roke. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on your uh, recent tenurehood. Is that how you say that? Tenureship? <laughs> Tenuracity? Right. Tenacity <laughs> to gain tenure. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Exactly. And today we are also joined by the author of The Forever Sea and its upcoming sequel, The Endless Song, Joshua Philip Johnson. Uh, Josh, thanks uh, for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to chat about the book. Josh, it's a total pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. Also, a peek behind the curtain, um, 15 minutes into recording, we had um, I was having an issue with my computer, and we lost my recording. So Josh is also kind enough to redo this first 15 minutes. So thank you, Josh, for also being patient <laughs> with us during that as well. There you go. It's great. I get I get another chance to make my good jokes, so I'm ready, I'm ready for it. It's <laughs> yeah. good. I love it. All right. So first, we're going to start off by um, finding out a little bit about your history with uh, speculative fiction and RPGs. So if you want to go ahead and share that with us, we would love to hear it for the first time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. It'd be crazy if I told a completely different story this time, right? <laughs> you, you both would be like, which one is? Uh, so it. yeah. So uh, so as a kid, I you know I was the kid who um, you know read every fantasy novel I could get my hands on. Um, you know, I started with stuff like the Chronicles of Narnia, the Chronicles of Prydain, Lord of the Rings, Dragon Riders of Pern, all of that sort of stuff. And um, and yeah, I, I read I. Um, I wrote um, quite a bit of pretty bad fan fiction, some Lord of the Rings fan fiction, some Pokemon fan fiction that um, is still on a um, floppy disk somewhere <laughs> and it's never coming off that floppy disk ever. Um, and so I did that through through most of high school. I didn't really know anyone in high school who was gaming. And so um, it wasn't until college where I met a couple of people who were running games and who invited me. And all I really knew about um, gaming was like, only nerds play D and D, and I thought I am a nerd, so this is perfect. Uh, and and um, and yeah, and I totally fell in love with it. I I loved um, the systems, I loved the communal storytelling, um, and as somebody who wanted to be a writer, I felt like this is such a great place to think about how to tell stories, to think about how other people tell stories, um, to get to be both sort of the writer and the audience at the same time, to sort of embody these narratives. And so um, for me, it felt like a really 
um, natural um, part of the of the process of writing. Um, so much so that now I'm I'm a college professor, not yet tenured as Hoy is, and so I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, and I include um, role playing in in most of my uh, writing classes. I I think it's such a great way to teach writing and to practice writing. And so I foist it upon my students whenever possible, and um, much to their joy or despair. <laughs> now, since we're doing this a second time, I want to ask you a question I didn't ask you the first time, which yeah. I want to know a little bit more about this fanfic you were writing. I'm curious, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Is, is there anything from the fanfiction that is either especially cringe that you want to share or oh, that yeah. you actually think was like really kind of cool that you're particularly proud of from your early fanfiction writing? Hmm. So yeah, I can share one of each. Um, the, the particularly cringe thing is the, the very first fan fiction I wrote, I remember had a very beautiful, but, um, sort of quiet and thoughtful elf named Josh, who, uh, who, who just didn't who just didn't fit in with the other elves and he went he sort of in search of fame and fortune and, you know, instead found love, you know, whatever. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, uh, I haven't thought about that in a long time, and now I'm thinking about it, which is bad. Um, <laughs> uh, in terms and of, I, I also like the name Josh. It feels like a very like Elven, it's a uh, very Tolkien elven name. name. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> springing straight out of Tolkien's mind. I think. Yeah, there's Boromir, and there's Faramir, and there's Josh. Um, yeah, and uh, what else? So I remember in one of the Pokemon fan fictions I wrote, there was also a character named Josh, um, but he 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 had like real serious moral qualms about essentially um you know imprisoning these creatures in these little balls and so what he was doing was um he made himself a thief and went around stealing pokeballs from other trainers and releasing the pokemon Ooh. and it was like you know it was like PETA in the Pokemon world or something. <laughs> I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's at least a little more interesting than a beautiful elf named Josh. <laughs> yeah. um, so you mentioned uh, your love of communal storytelling, which is uh, part of, uh, you know, potentially part of role-playing. Uh, although there's, again, there's people who say that role-playing shouldn't necessarily be uh, narrative first. It should be emergent storytelling or emergent. Uh, but what is that tension between this sort of your love of communal storytelling and you having to be that published author sitting down at the, you know, the computer and just you, you know? Yeah. But, I much prefer the communal storytelling. To me, it feels much more organic and more natural. And, you know, as a writer, I sometimes hear from um, readers who will say, I liked this, or I had questions about this, or I didn't like this. Um, you know, no writer should ever go on Goodreads. Um, but you you do hear from, from audiences. And um, that feels, it feels different than when you're sitting at the table or you're on Zoom and you're you're talking about a story and, and other people are really engaged in participating in the meaning making of it, right? And I, I, I guess I think that publishing can be like that. I, I feel often as a reader that like when I get a book, I get to help make it mean something. And maybe it was published in 1972, or maybe it was published in 1800 or whatever. And I get to sort of make it again today when I read it. And so I think that same process can happen, but it's it's harder to think of publishing that way. And so it's a, it's a thing that I would love to have an audience there at least sometimes when I'm writing right. and, and I, I feel like when you're at the table, you get to, everybody is both the, the writer and the audience. Right. And, and I really love that. Right. I mean, I guess it's very fraught, right? With IP, obviously IP issues yeah. is one thing. And then the distinction between communal storytelling and potentially like say fan service, 
right? It's yeah. a it's a big um, so there's no clearer dividing lines in there, but yeah, that's right. That sort of stuff is hard. You know, who owns stories and and who gets to say what they're about, or all of that stuff is is really tricky, especially when you get into IP and mm-hmm. how fans participate in things. You know, things like fan fiction. It you know that yeah, it, it is a fan on some level saying I own at least a little part of this story, mm-hmm. or I'm going to make part of it that I right. own, and suddenly. Right. It's different. And it's also fun when authors intentionally make space for that. You know, I, I like how in the early Weird Tales magazines, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, and H.P. Lovecraft were all very much taking things from each other and including things in each other's world. But also like um, Ellen Kushner and her world of Riverside, she very specifically like cult- uh, like cultivates and curates other authors to write within her world. And that's something she's very supportive of. So I think there is like, a, there are spaces where we can do this in a very interesting way. Totally. Yeah. And you, you know, you see authors today responding to one another, either explicitly on that level that you're talking about, or just implicitly, right? Like you read a book like The Farthest Shore or any of the Earthsea books, and it's so easy to see their influence moving through authors in the following years, right? Yeah. And so I think we're all part of a big conversation. The, the real question is like, whether we're obvious about it or whether we're a little more subtle about it. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, totally. Right. I mean, uh, the creation of meaning, obviously, is in that gap between the author's printed page or elect- electrons and the, the reader finally looking at it. You know, that's not to say that there aren't just bad and wrong takes. You know, clearly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, know, right. sort of, yeah. you need to work on reading comprehension. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, ultimately, it's not 100% up to the writer to say what the book is or isn't, right? Um, totally. Absolutely. Uh, and it, 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 especially with movies, for some reason, it really bugs me when a filmmaker tells us what something was really about. I'm like, I don't want to know what you think it's really about because oftentimes it's not what I was taking out of it. So now I'm walking away feeling like my experience of this thing is now suddenly like less valid and less interesting because like somebody else is telling me, no, actually it was all about this the whole time. Right, right. Um, I used to have this very, uh, almost prototypically Eastern European uh, teacher in film school. <laughs> he would say, just remember, material is always smarter than you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It, it reminds me of like, I love da- I love that David Lynch never reveals what's really going on. And he might not even really know. And there's that great interview with him where someone's like, can you, can you expound upon that? And he just says, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. It's the right. It's the that, right answer. Yeah, it's the right yeah, answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, well, this is. I think it would take pleasure out of it for the reader or the, for the viewer, for an author or a filmmaker to say, "Oh, it's about capitalism," or "It's about you know French art in the 1970s or whatever." Right. But also, totally. I think it would take the fun out of it for the writer, right? Like, I love writing stuff and feeling like I have a kind of intuitive sense about what it's, what it's doing. But, but I, I really try and resist having like a clear, here's my thesis for this thing. Right. I, I, it mm-hmm. just it, like, it would make it feel too simplistic right. and, right. and not right. Um, yeah. I am interested in process though. So I am interested when the filmmaker says, this is what I was thinking about, or these are the things I was thinking about when oh, I was sure. doing this, you know, totally. Yeah. Totally. But that is very different than this is movie about. is about blank. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I love totally. I love it when authors or filmmakers will say, here's like what I was putting into my head when I was mm-hmm. making this. Yeah. So what yes. they're really saying is like, these are my sources. And then you get to see the really like weird translation that happens is they're like, you know, I was reading uh, whatever Lolita and also J.R.R. Tolkien's memoir. And then yeah. I, and then I made this and you think like, how did you get from those things to this? <laughs> right. And that like, that's part of the magic. And it's not like, well, now I know the sources, and so I know exactly what it's about. It's just, yeah, that sort of thing is fun. So, yeah, I love process, too. It's super mm-hmm. interesting. And then this is a great segue into what would you recommend our listeners mm-hmm. read for inspiration for their gaming? Yeah, great question. So, I have two books. Um, one is um, a little bit older. I think it's from the early 2000s. It's by um, a British author named China Mieville. Um, and it is called The Scar. It is the second book in his trilogy called The Bass Lag Trilogy, I think. Um, and it is a it is a book that I was thinking about quite a bit while reading The Farthest Shore um, because it's a kind of shippy book. There's lots of stuff that happens on boats. They um, this this crew of people get um, kidnapped or or um, taken by this group of pirates who um, live in a kind of big armada that's made up of many ships kind of lashed together, like the raft people that we see at the end of the farthest shore. And um, it's super cool. It is, um, it, it's a pretty soft magic system, I would say. And so some stuff is not explained. It's, it's sort of weird fantasy. And so um, th- there are lots of things I would say that aren't going to be explained, which is part of the fun. But, um, but he's just, he's, he's a really great writer. He's a really smart writer, I think. And there's lots of cool stuff that, that happens. So I um, highly recommend the scar. And then the other cool. one is a book that is much more recent. It came out just a month or two ago. It is called Babel. Um, it's by the author RF Kuang. Um, she wrote the Poppy War um, trilogy, and I think has another book coming out called Yellow Face. Um, but this book is about um, Oxford, but sort of magical Oxford. And it's got a super cool magic system built around translation. And there are these bigger ideas about like imperialism and colonialism and power and the kind of romance and um, danger of education and the educational system. Um, it's sort of dark academia, I guess is what right. people call it, but um, it's super cool, really great. She's a wonderful writer and um, and it has footnotes. And so how can you not love a book with footnotes, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. In our secret parallel universe recording, we talked about, of course, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Yeah. Norell. So there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And- and it's interesting you mentioned academia. I'm not technically an academic. I'm in academia. But um, <laughs> that tension between um, the sort of idea of academia as being a, a place to harbor all sorts of ideas, including very progressive ideas, but also the fact that academia is replicating essentially very medieval systems. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's so interesting thinking about those those ideas, especially in terms of the Earthsea books, right? Which ha- at their core are a kind of like wizard school kind of thing. And yeah, academia, you know, so many so many books are written about this and you can both romanticize it and say like, it is this dreadful thing in which we're just kind of carrying on old ideas, but with a, a whiff of progressivism. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So now we can go ahead and start chatting about Ursula K. Le Guin's The Furthest Shore. And to start off with, let's take a look at which edition of the book we're working with. I'm working with the 2012 Athenium Books for Young Readers edition with um, artwork by Derek Harmon. And I also listened to the Audible audiobook, which is narrated by Rob Inglis. Uh, Josh, what are you working with? 
I have the 1972 hardcover Athenaeum edition um, with the illustrations by Gail Garrity or Garrotti. Um, They're the sort of woodcut style illustrations at the beginning of each chapter. It's really, cool. it's a super pretty book. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And you, Hoy? Uh, so, Jeff, when I was uh, away from home, I was using the ebook of the same edition that you're working with. Um, but when I was at home, I was using the much more unwieldy but lovely. Uh, <laughs> Books of Earthsea uh, from uh, Saga Press, which is fully illustrated by uh, Charles Vess, who is one of the most amazing comic artists, also known yeah. for illustrating Neil Gaiman. I wish I had, we were, again, we're joking about it, I wish I had one of those big podium stands so I could stand there and read this book and have a like, you know, big velvet hat and robes. <laughs> 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 Standing in a big, beautiful right. hall. Right, reading because this, yeah. this book is not one that you want to fall on your face when you're lying in bed and you know just break your nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's weighty. <laughs> so. Perfect. And now we'll dive into the Hygaxian word of the day, which for this episode is going to be avaricious which is on page 46 of my edition. And in it, um, on page 46, it says, the dragons are avaricious, insatiable, treacherous, without pity, without remorse. But are they evil? Who am I to judge the acts of dragons? Mm -hmm. And avaricious, of course, means, you know, um, having or showing extreme greed for wealth or material gain. Mm -hmm. And Josh, I believe you also had um, a word you would like to put forth for this segment. Yeah, it's not as good maybe as avaricious, but I, I really liked her her use of the word majory. So instead of spell work or spells or magic or or whatever she might normally use, she talks about um, old wizards majory or their majory still lingering on. I think at one point Cobb talks about having the majory of, you know, et cetera. And uh, it's just such a sort of chunky, chewy word. In a way, it stopped me up each time I read it. So, yeah. Right. Perfect. And at this point, we are now caught up with Hooray. what we had right. previously recorded. Right. So listeners, everything from this moment forward is completely spontaneous. Some of it was before because we asked some different questions. Right. But so this is very exciting. There we go. So now we can go in the <laughs> library and start chatting about the book itself. Josh, what are your thoughts about The Farthest Shore? It's interesting. I was listening to your um, episode about the previous book, The Tombs of Atuan, um, to sort of get ready for this and, and to sort of put myself back in that headspace. And I was thinking about that book, which I love quite a bit, sort of unabashedly and, and straightforwardly. And I think in some ways this book is harder and it's more complicated in some ways. Um, I, I love this book quite a bit, and I, I think I love it more as an adult. When I read it as a kid, I think I was unsure about it. It made me pretty sad. And mm-hmm. and the, the idea of things kind of coming to an end or the, the end of an age um, felt pretty sad to me. And, uh, you know, Le Guin has talked about it, this book being about death. And I think in some ways it really is, but it's also in so many ways about life as well. And it's about seeing those two things as, as really enmeshed. And um, so, yeah, I, I like this book a lot. I, I do think it is darker in some ways than some of the other Earthsea books. And in that way, it's hard to know sort of what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think there's this great moment where Sparrowhawk and Aaron are on the ocean and they hear the sea's voice and um, and I forget who, who who hears which one, but I think I think Aaron hears a word that sounds like um, the beginning, and Sparrowhawk hears a word that sounds like the end, and they're very very similar words. And I think that moment really beautifully encapsulates how beginnings are endings, endings are beginnings, and they're all kind of part of one of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And 
I think I had a pretty similar reaction. In fact, I don't even think I finished this book when I tried to read it as a child or, you know, mid-grade reader because uh, for the same sort of both the emotional reactions and I just wasn't able to sort of process this idea. It seemed very austere. Actually, all three books are austere in their own way, but this one seemed particularly so. One thing I noted um, was that this book seemingly is the least structured <laughs> right um they kind of don't know where they're going they know that something is going out something is leaking out of the world but they kind of don't know where to go and it's just kind of like oh we're going to go here and we're going to go here and we're going to go here ultimately it's for great effect but it's seemingly if you don't know it's like well there's no sort of there's this huge problem in the world but there's also no propulsiveness to how they attempt to deal with the world uh, this problem in the world right they they go to you know hort town and they end up little bannery and then but you know, and ultimately they do dragons run and end up at the end of the world in Celador. But it's not like, okay, we the evil is here. Here's where we're going. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. I mean, so much of this book, what I picked up on this this time reading it is th- th- I think the narrative itself feels aimless, which is maybe appropriate given what the the story is. But it's interesting. They they keep talking about guides, right? In each place they have a new guide, right? When they go to Hort Town, they have Hare, I think is his name. And then they go to, you know, etc. And and it's interesting the stuff about like having a guide and and knowing what you're looking for and what's pulling you through and whether Sparrowhawk is the guide or Aaron is the guide or, you know, etc. And I think that stuff really resonated with me in a way that as a as a kid I just I think I wasn't really ready for. And so she takes what seems to be a kind of aimless narrative and is good enough by the end to make that aimlessness feel really purposeful and intentional and, and in a way that really resonates with the the bigger themes of the book, right? All of the stuff about sort of knowing what's pulling you forward and uh, the knowledge of death being a thing that makes life rich, knowing what you're going to lose makes it worthwhile, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, all this stuff gets really wrapped up by the end. And so I think that's great. And I think the other thing is we get to see this through Aaron's perspective, which is which is pretty interesting, right? If we saw it through Sparrowhawk's perspective, it would be a hugely different book because most of the while he, or most of the time he, I think, doesn't really know what he's looking for and doesn't really care, right? So for him, the aimlessness is is fine. It's just part of the process. But Aaron gets to be this little analog for us. I, I mean, I felt myself reading and thinking like, but why are we here? Why are we going here? Right, right. And Aaron is always asking those questions right. for us, right? I particularly like that particular part where he becomes incredibly resentful of yeah. of Ged, and it's not clear whether it's just the natural because he feels like this is, or it's because of the magic leaching out of the world and it's affecting him psychologically. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Le Guin, I think, is so good about sort of introducing these little moments of doubt or despair into the perspective. And so you're not sure, is this really what Aaron thinks, right? When Aaron looks at um, Ged for the first time and feels not this like adoration or love, but a kind of ambivalence or or a kind of sense that like, I don't don't really know what we're up to. Um, And then that slowly mutates into anger and fear and whatever else. Um, I think she's really good about like, do we say like, this is really Aaron and he's, he's feeling this way, or this is this bigger sickness this bigger malaise that's affecting the world and so now we see it affecting not only this character but the perspective through which we're seeing this world and that like that trope of something's wrong with the world and we must do something about it is such a classic now i think in fantasy Mm -hmm. and i don't know i wonder if in the 70s if it was as common or um or not but but today it feels i think 
you know, totally normal and totally Mm -hmm. standard. And I feel like underneath a lot of that is um, potentially kind of what what was going on in the world of being the early 70s. But real quick, before I get into that, though, this this whole thing about how um, Sparrowhawk is kind of like maybe you know, drifting on the breeze, trying to figure out what's happening here. To me, that seems really interwoven with this conversation on page 175 of my edition, where he says, you were born into power, Aaron, as was I, power over men, over men's souls. But I, who am old, who have done what I must do, who stand in the daylight facing my own death, the end of all possibility, I know that there is only one power that is real and worth having, and that is the power not to take, but to accept. So I love that, like, accepting what is happening in this world and who you are and your role in it is really foundational to this piece, which I just thought was really cool. But then also how... Um, my interpretation of what's happening here, and and um, and Hoy was saying in the Patron Book Club that this is actually uh, affirmed in the afterward, which I did not read, um, which is that this is also a commentary on kind of the lost promise of the '60s. You know, the '60s is like it's vibrant and it's bright and it's like full of what we could call magic in a lot of ways. And there's free love and there's drugs and there's like all these things that we're doing to free our mind and expand ourselves. And then by the early '70s, it's it's war. It's it's drug addiction. It's 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 violence. It's um it's um riots you know, and racial civ- injustice. Riots and civil yeah. rights. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's it's a very different world suddenly in the late seventies, and it's really people trying to come to terms with the loss of that magic and the unfulfilled promises that we that we had really bought into as a society at the time. I think, yeah, I, that's it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but it totally makes sense. And I think it's it's especially important then that this magic, you know, she she has it leeching out of the world or being pulled out of the world as we discover by the end. Um, but it's it's not affecting everybody in exactly the same way, right? And so it affects these like small trading islands and these small port towns long before it affects the people in Roke, right? you know, we get that yeah. scene at the end. The people the in power. That's right. Yeah. And so yeah. there, there's a kind of, there's a kind of um, shielding that privilege and power can offer you of these sorts of things. So even as the magic starts to exit the world, you can be protected from it. And, you know, that's, it still rings so true today. I mean, the thing that I was thinking about as I was reading is the way in which like money and power can shield you from the effects of something like climate change, which is this big systemic problem that will affect everybody. But if you have enough wealth, you can shield yourself from it, right? You can build your own little island of Roke and be your own little master. And for a long time, not forever, but for a long time, you'll be okay. And it starts to creep in from, from the outsides. And so I think it's, it's really smart that, um, that she, she does this. And then of course, you know, by the end we see the master summoner affected and the master changer affected. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this is, this is totally right. right. I, I was struck by there, there's this part at the end. It's like one of the last pages. Um, it's two 22 for me. Um, the doorkeeper, uh, who's like such an interesting enigmatic character, I think. Um, the doorkeeper says, um, or it says, the doorkeeper smiling said, he has done with doing, he goes home, right? And like, it's, you know, we were talking about earlier, I think in maybe our parallel recording, yeah. the way in which Le Guin is so good about delivering really meaningful, impactful ideas in pretty sparse, sometimes simple language. And this is that, right? right. Ged's thing throughout the whole book is like a kind of simplistic, pretty straightforward, almost naive approach to life. And, and this is it, right? He, 
like he's done doing right that's yeah. that's it his his part in the story is done right. of course you know we get the fourth book later and and it's yeah. not quite done but <laughs> um, but for now it's done and right. yeah i think it's really impactful right it's mentioning interesting you mentioned again the sort of this protected class these mages because the ultimately the villain if you call yeah. that also the villain is the victim but the villain Cobb is pretty much of that class right he's also a wizard he was not a wizard of roke but he was a, a you know a great court wizard and he punches this hole in the world because of this fear that he has. It feels almost like some of these Silicon Valley, uh, you know, billionaires <laughs> with their, you know, blood replacement and, and all yeah. the other crazy yeah. stuff, you know, that they're doing. And, you know, uh, all the sort of life extension therapies that they're sort of, uh, you know, bankrolling. <laughs> but they're ultimately causing the problem to become even worse, right? It feels yeah. like those people. Right? <laughs> it know? totally, it totally does. Yeah, and it's interesting that at the end, it's not really this great battle between mages that settles it, right? We right. get like a tiny bit of that, right. and then Aaron finally gets to use his sword. Yeah. But really, it's like a conversation about moral values at the end, right? Like that's the thing that that like like re- that, that's the real fight, and then it's Sparrowhawk giving something up, right? It's not the use of power. It's the, it's the sort of absolution of power. And that feels like hugely relevant today, right? Mm -hmm. Like hugely relevant. Yeah. And and he's not saying like, and Ged very specifically makes the point, yes, death is terrible. You're right to be afraid of it. So it's not saying that anyone's wrong to have these fears or, or to, it's that, it's how we respond to these fears. That's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, I think it would it would seem so simplistic if and and we wouldn't trust Ged anymore, right? As a kind of moral compass or or kind of um, value compass for the for the book, if he just said like, "Why be afraid of death? There's nothing to you know." These yeah. these kind of like cheery, <laughs> right. what he, like he understands that the world is hard, and and what what he and Aaron have seen is people really struggling and people um, you know unable to kind of interact with their lives in the way that they used to because of the stripping of this magic and this meaning from the world. And so it, it feels right, I think, at the end of this novel for him to admit, or not admit, but but sort of come to terms with the fact that, yeah, this is scary. Of course it's scary. I understand why you would do this, but it doesn't make it okay, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, we were talking about, you know, how we are starting to very much resist chosen one narratives, but ultimately Aaron does fall into this as the, the, the mm-hmm. king who was promised. Um, mm-hmm. but I think the process of this is talking about that. It's not a great, great and glorious thing. He's not doing anyone who wants to be King is probably not worthy, <laughs> worthy of being, he has to learn what it is, you know, he has to learn to accept and, and it's restoring the land and the love of the people that makes him worth the King, not worthy of being King. It's not his bloodline per se or anything like that. That makes him worthy of being a King, right? I haven't read the later books, the Le Guin books. I mean, I read Tahanu, I think, when it came out. So I don't know how much she's revisited these ideas of, like, you know, power and kingship. I know she revisits the idea of, like, femininity and power, uh, yeah. you know, with Tahanu in the later books. But it is, again, interesting, uh, ultimately, that in many of these books, it's about, it's the act of giving up power that makes someone worthy, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it seems like for Aaron, there's, like, his... His story is an interesting one because he is he is slowly being unmade throughout the course of the novel in the same way that Ged is slowly being unmade, right? We start out and Ged is this kind of untouchable figure, the great archmage, etc. And and by the end, he's just Ged again, right? right? And Aaron starts out being this kind of, you know, fancy lordling who sailed here in like total privilege, etc. And he slowly gives up his his real kind of commitment to that lineage, and only then can he be king. I mean, I don't know. Part of me still thinks 
the chosen one narrative that's kind of at the heart of this is still a it's just hard to know what to do with that today because right. um, we trust Ged. And so, you know, he looks at this character and says, it's going to be you. I've chosen you a- and okay, but also, it, but also, I don't know, right? right In right. a novel that's so much about different people being able to guide and the need for lots of different guides. What we get at the end is the answer to the question that the masters are offering at the beginning, which is we need some King to guide us. That's, that's really what we're missing here. And I don't know if the, the novel itself agrees with the thing that it's offering at the end, right? It seems like right. the <laughs> argument of the novel is you need more than one guide. Right. And what we yeah. get at the end is here's your one guide. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's complicated. Right, right. Um, and I guess with, with reading the follow-up books, we'd, we'd see if, you know, what effect it has. But is, you know, Ged, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Aaron Labanin, is he literally the guide or is he symbolically you know, in, you know, well, both obviously, but symbolically inhabiting these values so that people can then just say, okay, well, all's right with the world. Now I can focus on doing my little bit of it that also puts the world back into order, right? Because right. it's the, the magic we find out is not just these great spells, right? The dying is partly magic. It's the singing of the songs uh, with the children of the uh, children of the ocean on their rafts, right? Is yeah. also magic. And later on in Tahanu in the later books, you know, she's, you know, she says, yes, you know, uh, we talked about the mages of magic, but it turns out women have their own magic. That's not that, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, there's lots of discussion about, um, like whether magic is real or not, or whether it's illusion. And Aaron has that point where he's sort of questioning whether any of Sparrowhawk's magic is sort of real or not, whether it's just been kind of illusion, but it's interesting that we see magic having a real effect on the world in these tradespeople, right. In the markets, right. Like, I can't dye this silk anymore in the way that I used to be able to do, or I can't sing anymore. And these are real kind of concrete things that are happening in the world. And it's not just like Sparrowhawk making light or something, you know, that sort of thing. And so, yeah. 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 What I also thought was interesting too, is the use of very romantic language in talking about how the two of them interact with one another. And even when, um, even when Aaron first meets Sparrowhawk, um, the, um, the narration says for Aaron had fallen in love and that's not language that's usually used to describe, um, friends or a mentor mentee relationship. That's language that's usually reserved for romance. And I think it's interesting that, that Le Guin is using that kind of language here. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts or insights as to why she's framing it this way. Yeah, I remember reading this as a kid and thinking nothing of it. Um, and uh, reading it as an adult, you know, my first thought, especially since we have like such a wonderful bounty of queer literature now, um, especially in sci-fi and fantasy and as a queer author myself, um, you know, my first thought was like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, let's see. Um, but it's interesting, She, you know, so much of this is about um, Aaron's love of not just Sparrowhawk, not just... Um, this person, but also the myth that he has come to embody, right? The, he, he walks into a room and people say, there's the archmage, right? Right. And so I, I think it's interesting. Aaron's love, I think for Sparrowhawk or for Ged deepens, but it also gets, um, it gets sort of truer, right? He's, he stops loving like the figure of the archmage and, and all that he might represent. And by the end, it's the, the love of a mentor or the love of a friend or something like that. And that I think is, that's really impactful, um, especially given 
what we have in the previous two books of this series and the importance of mentorship and the, you know, how, how learning happens and how knowledge happens. Um, but it's also, it's, it's a, I think it's a nice portrayal of a thing that is of a, of a kind of relationship that's often really fraught in books and, and it's complicated here, but it, but it's not fraught in the same sorts of ways. So I, I really like that language. Um, cause otherwise it would just be, it, I think it would feel less impactful or feel less meaningful to me. Right. And, um, it's, yeah, there's the element of eros, but it's also, um, uh, agape, right? Love. Yeah. Of, and, and that's important that Aaron has to learn that, right? The, the initial impact yeah. is, is get is this superpower, but then he starts to see like get as this, you know, cause get is often referred to as like harsh, not yeah. mean, just like his, his language, his voice, you know, it sounds harsh. It's not pleasing to the ear. And so you would say, well, why would anyone, the attraction, then you realize it's the attraction is not erotic or it's not primarily erotic. There's an element of that, certainly in, initially, but it's, it's Aaron learning what it means to love beyond loving this idealized figure, loving his mother, who is, you know, apparently a lovely woman also, because he has mentions like, you know, writing a letter back to his mother. It's realizing yeah. that he has to love like all of creation, you know, even something like Cobb in order to be worthy to be <laughs> king, right? <laughs> You know? Yeah, there, there's that great moment near the end where Aaron sees the world as Ged sees it, right? He sees the beauty in the world in a way that he hadn't been able to before. And so, he's gone from place to place, and often he ha he himself has really harsh things to say about the people of a place or yeah. the, the landscape of a place. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, in some ways it reminds me, this seems like a, maybe like a reach, but it doesn't seem so in my mind that like, it's very similar to sort of like, you know, Plato's dialogues, right? This, this feeling that like, I am talking to Socrates or, you know, I'm, I'm talking to this great teacher and I have a, a deep love that, that is outside of like a, a sort of physical love or an attraction. And it's more like, I'm in love with the way that you see the world and move through the world. And the mm -hmm. thing we get with Aaron by the end is he's finally starting to be able to imitate Sparrowhawk or get in that way, right? He, he looks at the landscape and sees this is beautiful and, and some of it will die and then it will live again and, you know, et cetera. Right, right. And he looks at Cobb and feels first anger, but then some pity. And uh, I think that, you know, that's real love, right? That that's being able to sort of sit alongside somebody and, and sort of imagine who they might be and how they right. might exist. Right. No matter how, you know, irritating or, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, right. Right. I mean, yeah, he's looking at Celador, as you say, that whole thing. And it's like, and he just sees like, oh, it's just like depressing. And, you know, gets like, you yeah. know, the stream has flowed forever and no one's ever seen it. Right. You know? And, yeah. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Yeah. It's really, it, it, like, for me, it really resonates um, as somebody who lives in the Midwest. And, you know, there are areas around here, the landscape is very traditionally thought of as not especially beautiful, right? If you want beauty, you should go find mountains and you should go to the ocean. And I think those are beautiful places. But, you know, uh, um, a big patch of um, prairie grasses, I think, can also be beautiful. And, you know, cornfields can be beautiful, you, you know, so um, that sort of thing, really looking at the world and appreciating it for what it is, as opposed to what it might be in a different way. Right. I think it's yeah. really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. If I may borrow that, Jeff, and I'll do the segue here, because we had talked again in our secret hidden recordings about the effect <laughs> of terrain on potentially writing, and we'll talk about that. Um, I have a thesis that uh, we take into gaming. Uh, gaming could only have ever, role-playing games as we know it, could only have ever been created in some place like the upper Midwest. Um, because... <laughs> because you have to have this uh, landscape that seemingly doesn't offer you anything, especially during these very long, cold winters. 
Um, but you have these like uh, in the upper Midwest in America, uh, but you have these like heated garages and heated basements and long winters with nothing to do, especially in the late sixties and early seventies. <laughs> right. And if you look at sort of the role playing belt until later on, uh, you know, um, uh, RuneQuest is created in the Bay Area. It's really sort of like the upper Midwest and then sweeping down to the sort of like mid South, right? As this belt. Like it wasn't created in yep. New York. It wasn't created in Boston <laughs> or any of these other sort of intellectual centers, right? It's created in the upper Midwest, right? Um, in, in the world where the war, where the wargaming scene was also really vibrant, which also makes a right. lot of sense that these are yeah. the same people who would be engaging in wargaming yeah. who have major terrains in their basement <laughs> and they're moving figurines <laughs> around. <laughs> You can't do that in an apartment <laughs> in New York, nor can you have like an entire scene around that. That's like, that's like slowly building and becoming a big deal in a place like New York. Yeah. I mean, I'm very convinced by this. I hadn't thought about it at all, but it makes like very real sense to me. Um, <laughs> it's also interesting, you know, so many narratives I think in gaming often um, at least initially move from like, here you are in this kind of quiet place and you need to journey to the place where stuff happens, right? We don't often start in the place where stuff happens. And so right. here you are in Iowa or something <laughs> and you think, all right, well, if I want to go to where stuff happens, I need to drive for a while or fly for a while. <laughs> and it's, the, you know, it's the same here. It's interesting. I think that's probably true. Um, I wonder how many Midwestern basements are dominated by big tables for, for role-playing. And yeah. <laughs> One thing that I think is interesting about reading this book, though, is Gary Gygax does not cite Ursula K. Le Guin in the Appendix N. So she is not one of the artists that he is saying you need to read for inspiration for your gaming. However, she is listed in the um, the 1981 um, basic D&D box set that is recommending that you read her works. And if you buy fifth edition now, she's listed in the appendix E and that's recommended there as well. But reading this, it's very clear to me that some things had to have come from this. I think it can't be a coincidence that the two most powerful dragons in the original dungeon master's guide are the red dragon and the gold dragon. And here in this, the two most powerful dragons we encounter are a red dragon and a gold dragon. Now, granted, in D&D, traditionally, the gold dragon is slightly more powerful than the red, and the inverse is true here. But regardless, I thought that was really interesting. And then also in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, when you use the polymorph self spell, there's always a chance that you're going to get stuck there. Mm. And that's something that's also from this. And it seems funny to me that like that is that that's the only caveat of a spell like that that I can think of from AD&D. And it's specifically stated here as being true. So it seems like it's too much of a coincidence for those two things not to have either intentionally or unintentionally bled into kind of how early D&D was crafted. I am convinced by that. I, I, yeah, I, I'm trying. I was trying to think of other narratives that I've read pre that date that would have either of those things, and I can't think of anything. I mean, the only thing I would say to that, and it's funny because we've done this seven year project based on this, is that <laughs> I think that Appendix N was literally that an appendix, an afterthought, and so that a lot of people <laughs> yeah. probably put way too much weight on what's included and not included in Appendix N. Yeah. Um, I think it's an amazing roadmap to great fiction, but. You know, <laughs> I yeah, also sure. think that at the time in the 70s as well, um, as the Lord of the Rings was getting bigger, there was there were more um, like 
there was more fantasy available for kids. There was a lot of like Narnia was easily available, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, all of that kind of stuff. So there was a real thirst for fantasy for adults, yeah. which is why the Ballantyne adult fantasy series became such a big deal that I wonder if like Gary Gygax and folks similar to him are going to be a lot more likely to dismiss fantasy works that are marketed towards a younger audience, which these books were. So I almost wonder if he just didn't include her in the appendix end because he wanted to have authors that he considered to be a little bit more serious and adult-oriented, which might may have just made Ursula K. Le Guin a victim of her own marketing mm, right. Um, right. Yeah. As, po- as a possible That's reason. possible, especially with what the mandate for Appendix uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was, which was to be, this is the, the codified rules for tournament play and, you know, advanced play. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I know that uh, specifically in the BX uh, recommended reading, they did have... Um, consult uh, a woman, I forget her name, but she was a children's and YA librarian. She said, oh, you know, you should, mm-hmm. and the, the mandate for the BX game was to bring you know, people who are new to role-playing and younger gamers in, so that's why you have Lloyd Alexander, uh, yeah, Lloyd Alexander yeah. and other authors listed in that in that particular uh Although it is separated, yeah. it's like in that same list. There's like for 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 young readers and then for adult readers, yeah. and I, I forget where Ursula K. Le Guin falls on that, but I think it's with the with the young right, readers, right? Yeah, I mean, she was specifically not her, but she was specifically marketed as sort of proto YA at that point, you know, for these books. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's yeah. so hard to she's so hard to categorize though now yeah. of course right yeah. after after she's written so much stuff right yeah. it, you know later on she of course wrote great stuff for adults too um and yeah you, you know you look at this book and I don't know it's clear in some ways I think maybe on the level of prose and um on the maybe the number of characters or something that it can kind of fit into a YA um or sort of younger audience um genre but but also I think some of the themes are as we were saying, are hard for for younger kids, and so right. it's it's. I think she's really hard to pin down in that right. way. For sure, I don't think this book could have been written by anyone. I mean, she was, I guess, in her early forties when she wrote this. It couldn't have been written by anyone in their twenties. This just you could have all the plot points, but it still wouldn't be the same book. It yeah. has to have someone who has that sort of viewpoint. That I mean, uh, as uh, Jeff was saying, she must have been quite old at that time, between forty and fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient, yeah. Ancient. Right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one thing that so here we are, we're we're in the third book of what's going to be a trilogy, um, at least at the time. They, we ended up getting more. But this was the idea was this was the the final installment of the trilogy. Yeah. And in this final installment, magic is dying. So what I'm curious is your opinion on incorporating something like that in the third act of uh of a long campaign. Now, suddenly, magic is dying in the world. Now, theoretically, if you're playing a fighting class, then your character is not so <laughs> affected. But if you're playing like a cleric or a wizard, you are. So, Josh, what is your what are your thoughts on incorporating a story like this or a plot device mm-hmm. like this in a in the late stage of a long campaign? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I was I was trying to think about this as I was reading it, both because I'm I'm running a game right now in which this kind of narrative mechanic would be really interesting to include. I think. And what's what system are you running? I'm, this is a five game okay yeah this is a 5e game um so i think what's particularly instructive about how she does it is she offers us two characters who offer different perspectives on the same event happening so um magic is leaving the world and we say okay so if i'm 
um, Archmage Ged, then this is a big problem for me, right? It both threatens who I am and it threatens what I do. But if I'm Aaron and I'm a lordling and, you know, I'm still quite wealthy, this doesn't really impact my life in, in the same way, or at least um, it's not going to for a long time. And so I think what's particularly great about it and what I would try and do in looping it into um, a, a game of my own is to ask, like, um, in what way can I make this relevant to every character, regardless of whether they're not going to be able to use some spells anymore, or maybe it's a it's a character thing, right? Somebody you know or love is going to be affected deeply by this, or you know whatever it might be. So I, I think she provides us with the kind of top down world building in which we say. Um, you know, this is affecting the world in this way. It's affecting markets and it's affecting um, the the island of Roke and blah, 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 blah. Um, but then we also say it affects Ged in this particular way. And then we say it also affects Aaron in this particular way. And and we can sort of try and attack it or defeat it in several, right? It's not like, if it's just there's a thing happening broadly and it's a big sickness, then we just kind of throw up our hands and say, oh no. But if it's- As we've done caused- the last two years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's maybe cutting a little close to home. I don't know. Um, but if it's coming from, if if it is both that and it's coming from a guy, then maybe you're not as affected by the problem, but you could be part of the solution, right? So, you know, Aaron does not do any magic and they make a point of like drawing our attention to the fact that he thought maybe by the end it was going to be revealed that he had some great power that Ged saw in him. And he doesn't. He's a kid with a yeah. sword, right? Who has a mm-hmm. good heart, I guess. And he gets to at least be part of the solution. And so I would think really carefully about like for each of my players, how could I offer them ways to participate in either the bigger problem or in the solution so that it feels impactful for them or that they at least may have an impact on it? Because um, I think these like um, sort of this, the world is sick or there's a big thing going on can be really compelling narratives, but they can feel so huge yeah. that it suddenly feels like, okay, I'm going to spread this out over 30 sessions. And by the end, it's just kind of background noise, but it gets more and more relevant for the characters in the story. Right. And I, I mean, would think really hard about ways to make it more and more relevant for right. players. I, I also proposed this question to our patron book club prior to this and uh, proposed. I posed it. I posed <laughs> it. That's what I did. I didn't propose it. I posed the question to the patron book club. And um, and the answer I gave um, was, I think, really tied into an insight you made earlier about how as magic was seeping out of the world, people like the people who were dying fabrics are affected. People who are singing are affected. And there's a character at one point who talks about how like the luck has gone out of the world. So what that was kind of getting me thinking about is how maybe the, the what magic is in this world is bigger than even the regular folks realize. So also maybe in a Dungeons and Dragons style world, warriors a lot of their powers come from magic. Thieves, a lot of their powers come from magic. And Hoy and I play a lot of Dungeon Crawl Classics, and a way for me to kind of conceptualize that would be maybe the deed die that a warrior has or Mm. the luck die that a thief has would be affected in the same way a wizard would be affected. But also for you as a 5e player, I know most of the class or all of the classes have all these like at-will powers that if we look at those, a lot of them look and feel kind of magic-y. Yeah. So maybe suddenly these things are like are starting to be affected by this. And things that they really relied on for the longest time are becoming harder for them to access and they're not able to rely on it as much. So they won't even maybe realizing how 
all of these great heroes of this like RPG fantasy world are part of this age of heroes that can't exist without magic. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, I, th- I think there are always ways to sort of tie things in, even if the player class or whatever doesn't seem to match up. But mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is is great. And what I would do, I think, and I, I know that this doesn't work for every kind of player, and if any of my players are listening, I'm very sorry that I have this tendency to do this. Um, but <laughs> I think what I would do is to try and emulate the way in which um, Sparrowhawk and Aaron experience these things initially, which is kind of confusion at a thing that used to be dependable, no longer being dependable, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, you imagine a player um, wants to cast some sort of spell in battle, and they say, I'm going to cast whatever it is, and you say, um, okay, you know, go ahead and roll, and they do, and then you say, like, uh, it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. they know that based on the die roll, it should have worked. And so there's this moment of confusion where what you're really showing them is the symptom of the bigger problem. And then yeah. they get to sort of piece that together, right? And maybe it's going both ways. Maybe they're fighting a basilisk and the basilisk is staring yes. at them. Yes. And they're not turning into stone for some reason too. Yeah. So like it's happening on both sides of this conflict. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that sort of thing is like so fun narratively when, when you say like, well, I know this about the world and then some part of it is different. And they say, well, yeah. wait a minute. Well, right. well, what's yeah. going on? Right. And you stack this enough troll of that isn't up. regenerating. Yeah, exactly. And you stack enough of that up and they say like, oh my gosh, there's a pattern here. And they say, yeah. yes, there was. And right. it's this great revelatory moment, right? right. Um, those can be super cool. And and you can do them kind of, you know, at will as you're, as you're moving. I right. think that sort of stuff is neat. And I totally agree that it's a tricky thing to pull off without seeming like you're deliberately just nerfing the, the players yeah. for or, yeah. or uh, you know removing agency so you kind of have to give yes. little as you say it doesn't work it's something doesn't f- you have to not just say it doesn't work something didn't feel right you got a little headache or a twinge or something like yeah. that so that they know you know you're sort of well uh, you know um signposting that this is something yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you know yeah, as long as you're giving it cool. some sort of narrative flavor or something, then then I think you can do it, right? And it feels just fine. Right. Um, but yeah, you don't want to just say like, oh, everything you do doesn't work. Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's not, okay, this is not fun anymore. Right. right. Yeah, I, I totally. played some of those games when I was a kid. Yeah, you don't need those. Yeah, but. yeah right. exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I want to smash this controller now. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this has been awesome. I've been really enjoying this conversation and it's time for us to start wrapping this thing up. So Josh, do you have any final thoughts about the farthest shore that you didn't get a chance to share that you would like to, or do you just kind of want to summarize your thoughts about the book? Um, Yes, I do. So um, there's a part that we didn't talk about much, or maybe we kind of touched on it a little bit. I mean, I I love this book. I think I loved it more this time reading it than I had the last time. And it's a book that I think I'll probably return to again. Um, I'd really like to go back. I I just... um, I reread Wizard of Sea, but I didn't get a chance to read um, Tombs of Atuan. And so I think what I'll do next time is go all the way through. But there's this part that um, we didn't really talk about, but it's the part where Sparrowhawk gives Aaron or, or sort of um, calls him his name, um, I think, for one of the first times. And so it's um, it's on 136 for me. Um, it said, he said Aaron's true name, which he had never spoken, Lebanon or Lebanon. Um, again, he said it, Lebanon, this is, and thou art. There is no safety and there is no end. The word must be heard in silence. There must be darkness to see the stars. And just just like the sentence, um, this is and thou art, right? Like what a simple, straightforward sentence that like 
captures so much of what I think this book is about, which is like existence itself without all of the stuff that we do and all of the things that we make of ourselves. Existence itself is pretty miraculous and is is sort of like the you know the reason for the season. And I I think that sort of thing is really compelling, right? Those are the moments where I feel like there is a really wise person on the other side of this, right? Like Ursula Le Guin is there offering us this really interesting thing to think about. And I find it super compelling. And so th- I think this book is complicated in some ways, but I think at its heart, it's a really simple, really honest thing. And I love that um, part of that was there must be darkness to see the stars, yeah. because that reminds me of a quote that I also wrote down from here, um, where Sparrowhawk said, to see a candle light, one must take it into a dark place. Yeah. So there's some of these things that can feel a little bit like inspirational quotes, yeah, but right. also do have some like really beautiful kind of profound messages underneath all of it too. This idea that like we have to suffer to find meaning, we have to experience grief to 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 experience joy, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. I feel like um and again this is from our mystery lost episode earlier we talked about <laughs> the use of language. I think what is uh, especially to your point there uh Josh is that Le Guin is such a master of getting these comp- very complicated ideas and not literally spelling them out because some of them are just too big to, to co- encompass with language, but also not to obfuscate them with any sort of very uh, academic language or overtly yeah. poetic language. And, and so that you, you feel these things in a, in a very visceral way that you might not with that, the, the barrier of language in front of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Perfect. And Josh, uh, do you have anything that you're working on that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, so I just finished. In fact, I just turned in yesterday the page proofs for The Endless Song, which is, um, as you said, the sequel to The Forever Sea. So that comes out in January. So I think by the time this episode drops, it will be maybe two months away. Um, and so I am I am happy to be done working on that, but I've been working on it quite a lot recently. Right. Um, and I am currently working on a new book um, that is about Ronald Reagan and oh. the end of the world and fairies. <laughs> and so, um, love it. So look forward to that sometime. Well, there you go. What, what, what yeah. more? What more? Three things could not go better together. Than- <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And if folks want to find you online, how would you like? What is your preferred method of stalking? Oh, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter if you want, or you don't have to follow me. You can just look at my page and then decide not to follow me, but it's um, at Johnson Joshua P on Twitter. And um, you can also email me at um, johnson.joshua.p at gmail.com. And I'd love to chat. Perfect. Hoy, where can folks find us? All right. Um, if you want to drop us a note and let us know how we're doing, you can do that at Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple Podcasts. Uh, it does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? All right. Yes. So our patrons are able to join us for our patron exclusive recordings. Um, and I'd like to give a shout out to Rick Byrne, Oliver Brackenberry, and Adam Styers for joining us for the um, for that earlier today. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to our three newest members of the Patreon, uh, Robert Phillips, Tuber, and Ted Hodling. Thank you all for joining our Patreon. We really appreciate that. Also want to give a shout out to some of our other patrons. So I'll pull a bunch of names out of the hat here. Uh, we've got Robbie Fioto, Jeff Willett, Dan Alexander, Richard Ruwain, Noah Green, Jeremy Harper, Jason White, Eric Hicks, Joseph Hoopman, and Demo Saklas. 
Thank you all for your support. Our patrons also choose which books we are covering. And um, we have the results in for episode 136. We'll be covering Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, Episodes 137 and 138 are still currently being voted upon at the time that we're recording this. But when this episode drops, there will be the poll for episode 139. And the theme for that poll is going to be Dying Earths. And it's going to be four, because we currently have four Dying Earth-related series that we haven't finished. So these are at least book two in these series. So the first one up for vote is Lynn Carter's The Barbarian of World's End. The second one is N.K. Jemison's The Obelisk Gate. The third is Jack Vance's Kugel Saga. And the fourth is Gene Wolfe's The Claw of the Conciliator. So those will be up for vote when this episode drops. And we are finished with this episode. So Josh, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Such a pleasure to meet and have a, having a pretty deep talk. So, all right, Pete, see you in the stacks. <laughs> Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>